This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome to 15-Minute History. I'm Henry Winsack, PhD candidate of modern U.S. history at UT Austin. Populism as a term seems to be describing everything in contemporary America today. It's a way of describing policies, campaigns, or even just a style of communication. And it seems to be thrown around so often that it's basically lost any particular meaning. But today's guest, Dr. Stephen Hahn, professor of history at New York University and author of The Roots of Southern Populism, Yeoman Farmers and the Transition of the Georgia Upcountry from 1850 to 1890, locates populism in a very specific time and place, which is the rural American South of the 1880s. Dr. Hahn, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. And so populism emerged, you argue, in the rural American South in the 1880s. What was going on in that particular time and place? Well, you know, the South underwent a number of really significant transitions in the mid to late 19th century. One was that slavery uh, was abolished, and uh, the South, as well as the rest of the country, made a transition from being organized around slave labor to being organized around new forms of free labor. Uh, The other major transition that took place is that lots of small farmers, people who had been non-slaveholders or small slaveholders before the Civil War and who were on the edges of the market economy, grew mostly subsistence crops, were drawn in to the cotton economy, and they began growing more cotton. And in and of itself, it would not necessarily have been a big problem. But by the 1880s, the cotton market had begun to deteriorate. And so by that point, small landowners were under enormous amount of financial stress because the prices that they got for their cotton uh, were having a difficult time matching the cost of production. So they were losing money. Some of them started to lose their land and fall into the ranks of tenants and sharecroppers. And um, there was a a great deal of distress in the agricultural economy generally, but especially among people who had not really been deeply involved in market agriculture before the Civil War. So for them, uh, it was a pretty traumatic uh, transformation. And so how did that economic anxiety move into government? How did those those social and economic anxieties become political? Well... um, As is often the case, when people go through fairly uh, stressful and at some points traumatic change, they try to figure out what's going on around them and who's to blame for circumstances that they find themselves in. Now, the country as a whole was really in the transition toward an industrial capitalist economy. That meant numbers of things, that wealth and power were being concentrated into fewer hands, that control over important resources was sort of left in private rather than uh, under uh, public control, and that usually when societies industrialize, the countryside sort of pays the price. I mean, that was one of the things that happened as a result of the Civil War. The major agricultural sector of the country that had political power was the South, and most of the Southern states seceded and joined the Confederacy. The new political economy that was organized in the United States 
after the Civil War clearly benefited people who lived in cities, people who were in manufacturing, protective tariffs, things of that sort, a national banking system that favored urban rather than rural places. And so the costs of doing agricultural production were uh, growing. Uh, Not only were prices going down, but credit was becoming more expensive to get. And people who are in rural areas know that there are times of the year when they don't have cash on hand, they're going to have to borrow. So all of these things sort of uh, flowed together. And for many people who were sort of experiencing this, they wondered about the role that certain groups in American society were playing. Their most direct contact were with people who were merchants, who were selling them goods and also selling them their cotton. But they also recognized that the uh, balances of political power in the United States were shifting. At the same time, in the South and other parts of the country, there were independent political movements, like the Greenback Movement, which was very, very important in the 1870s and 1880s in the South and elsewhere, cities as well as rural areas. And the Greenbackers raised questions about who controlled the money supply. Money is the great enduring question in the 19th century. What is money and who controls it? And the Greenbackers were calling for an inflationary currency. Um, They wanted more money in circulation. But they were also suspicious about private banking, and so that they wanted the supply of money in public hands. I mean, that was sort of the essence of greenbackism. So in that context, people in the South who were also undergoing these changes were influenced because greenbackers started to organize in various parts of the South, including Texas, where they had a pretty substantial base in the 1870s and into the early 1880s and began promulgating a view of the relationship between individual producers, other people who were called non-producers, and the organization of the government, which they felt favored uh, non-producers at their expense. So I think it, it sort of set up an environment where their distress could be turned into a critique of the economic relationships that were coming into being. When we hear populism now, I think we more associate it with kind of a manner of speaking and a style. But it seems what you're suggesting is that it was a very specific set of principles and political objectives. Well, what became populism, and the populist party emerged in the 1890s, but it built off uh, movements that were coming before, both in terms of its program and in terms of its forms of political organization, nonetheless had a clear platform. It had to do with expanding the money supply and therefore favoring debtors at the expense of creditors, meaning agricultural and even um, urban producers at the expense of merchants and other financial uh, uh, interests. It had to do with the abolition of national banks, which were in private hands, and the uh, federal government taking over the functions of um, uh, printing money and controlling the money supply. It talked about nationalizing uh, the means of transportation and communication. Um, So the idea was that important resources and infrastructures that were central to the way in which the economy was organized 
should not be in private hands. They talked about the end of alien, what they called alien land ownership, uh, which meant that foreign syndicates who would buy up land and basically make it more difficult, raise the price of land and make it more difficult for small producers to have farms of their own should be abolished. They talked the, about the free and unlimited coinage of silver at a certain ratio because there had been major silver strikes out in the Rocky Mountains, and they saw this as a way of inflating the uh, money supply and making money more available and reducing the rates of interest. They talked about the direct election of United States senators, because at that point, senators were elected by state legislatures. So there was a whole program that they saw as a way of readjusting, at the very least, the balances of power in the United States and shifting them back away from the major manufacturing and financial interests who they believed were using their control over wealth to corrupt the political system. I mean, that was a language, um, you know, that we'll always hear in terms of critique of wealth and power, which is about corruption, using money to further advantage themselves so that they enrich themselves at the expense of ordinary people. That's why they use the language of aristocracy. They talked about the robber barons and the money kings, the idea that there were these throwbacks, aristocrats, something that had been uh, apparently defeated at the time of the American Revolution had kind of reasserted themselves. So I think one of the things that certainly differentiates that particular moment from one we're in now where populism has become a broad label to characterize all sorts of political activity, mostly uh, organized around anger toward established interests, whoever they are, or established interests and their apparent clients. Uh, People who don't call themselves populists, who don't belong to any populist party, as opposed to the end of the 19th century, where there really was, it was called the People's Party, but also called the Populist Party, and people who supported it called themselves populists. And this is, at the same moment, there's a lot of labor agitation going on in factory towns and cities, uh, the Knights of Labor and similar types, types of organizations. Can you compare that perhaps more urban movement with the more rural agrarian movement that you're talking about? Yes, that's a very good question. First of all, I think there are interesting political and ideological bridges between the two because greenbackism is a phenomenon that has a very strong base in industrializing cities as well as in the stressed countryside of market and export agriculture. Uh, Again, ideas that wealth and power have been concentrated into too few hands, something we hear about all the time uh, these days, in which wealth and power has corrupted the political system, in which private banks should be abolished, in which greenbacks, um, the money supply should be expanded or contracted uh, in the interests of producers, in which producers themselves, small-scale operators, should have more power and uh, should get more benefits from public policy. So that was the bridge. The problems were there too. First of all, if you looked at industrializing cities, um, the working class was mostly foreign-born or first-generation first immigrant. 
Many of them were from uh, Europe, increasingly from Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, they were Catholics. They were Jews. Um, they spoke different languages. Uh, they had their own communities. And what's more, they were dependent on buying cheap goods from the rural areas, right, to feed themselves. Uh, in the countryside, you're looking at white, native-born, Protestant people uh, who are looking to raise the prices of the crops that they grow. So there's economic tensions between them. And then as constituencies, they're very different culturally. So the Knights of Labor, it's good that you mentioned that because, you know, we think about the Knights of Labor mostly in its industrial settings. But the Knights of Labor was organized in many, many different areas of the country, including in the South. They organized rural workers, especially black workers uh, in the South, but not only them. They organized people who were in small-scale rural industries. This was true in the South. It was true in the West. But I think it was very difficult to maintain and as a movement ongoing. So the populists in the 1890s, for example didn't do well in uh, industrial cities east of the Mississippi River. But they did well among workers in the Rocky Mountain states. They did well uh, among some workers in the far west and uh, in places like Idaho, where there was a tradition of um, radicalism among miners, among timber workers, among people who lived in these small, smaller Western towns. So that's where the bridge worked out much better politically. But the populists, you know, did best in rural areas of the plains of the south and of the Rocky Mountain West. East of the Mississippi River, the populists never really did very well, uh, although the Democratic Party, which had a complicated relationship with the populists, did better. You alluded to race in your last answer how did race figure into the populist coalition? Did it drive a wedge within what was ultimately an economic um, alliance? Well, you know, in some ways, the social base of the populist party would have been the least likely people you would imagine to engage in some kind of biracial political coalition. Most of them had been non-slaveholders before the Civil War. They were small agricultural property owners. They might have been tenant farmers as well. They had a sort of history of racist ideas and hostility to African Americans who were enslaved. Part of it was they kind of saw slaves and big landowners as joined at the hip, and therefore they were angry at both of them for being, you know, sort of part of the elite. But nonetheless, in the South of the post-Civil War period, um, those who wanted to chart an independent political course, who wanted to break away from the predominant Democratic Party, at least for white people, uh, recognized very early that it was going to be very difficult for them to win unless they were able to attract as many votes as possible. And so some of the more enlightened among them recognized that they needed to try to forge some kind of alliance with African-Americans who had gotten the franchise after the Civil War, had exercised it very, very determinedly and diligently, and even after the end of Reconstruction, continued to vote, continued to elect people to office wherever they could. 
in those areas where African Americans were still mobilized politically, they were an important force in local and state politics. So white insurgents had to pay attention to them. In some places, they were able to forge an alliance over time. Texas is one of the places in which this happened because there's a deeper tradition of uh, white support for the Republican Party, for the Greenback Party, for independent parties, that some of the stresses of the post-Civil War period were particularly acute, uh, especially in east-central Texas. And um, in some places, that alliance not only took shape in the late 1870s, but it endured through the 1890s and required violence on the part of conservative whites to destroy it. Uh, Other areas, the alliances were thinner and more temporary, but oftentimes there was a a direct pitch to African-American voters which said, you know, we're in the same economic boat. It was an economic argument that uh, as smaller producers and tenants in the countryside, that we're suffering because of the low prices for our crops, the high interest rates we have to pay on credit the political manipulation that's going on that's preventing any opposition to the Democratic Party from getting organized. And as a result, we need to, you know, vote together for the Populist Party. And this began to accomplish what I think the Republican Party had initially imagined for the Reconstruction period to try to build itself as a political organization dependent on the votes of African-Americans and of more humble whites. Didn't work out during Reconstruction, but in the, by the 1890s, and in some places earlier on, there were ways in which this worked out. One of the places where it worked out most formidably was in the 1870s and 1880s in Virginia, where they had a movement called the Readjuster Movement, which joined up um, more humble agricultural, white agriculturalists in the western part of the state with African Americans in the southern and eastern part of the state. And they took control of the state government, and they elected a senator, and they actually brought about significant social and political reforms before they also were toppled in large part through violent means. But I think one of the limits of all this was that most white populists, and there were exceptions, but most of them, really weren't interested in what African Americans really wanted and how what their interests and concerns were. They were interested in their votes. And so African Americans, with some exception, were tentative allies. Most African Americans did not vote populist. They continued to vote Republican because that was the party of emancipation. That was the party of political rights, even though by the late 19th century, the Republican Party was pretty much abandoning them. And those who did vote populist, you know, I wouldn't say were committed populists, but they were hoping that if the populists won, uh, the power of the dominant economic and political interests in the South and other parts of the country might be weakened. Would you judge populism as a political movement, as a, as a failure or a success or somewhere in between? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. On one level, you could argue that many of the things that the populists were interested in came to be. We have direct elections of United States senators. We have a federal reserve system where the money supply actually is 
in government hands as opposed to private hands. There are other reforms that have to do with uh, farm legislation that creates effectively cooperatives. One of the things that I, I neglected to mention was the populists were interested in what was called the sub-treasury system, which was going to be a nationwide system of co-ops. The idea was to sidestep the power of local merchants and finance capital elsewhere, where farmers could bring their crops, deposit their crops that could be held back for sale when the price went up, and on the value of the crops, get uh, credit at low rates of interest. Well, in, f in point of fact, by the 20th century, uh, this kind of um, farm policy, which has to do with price supports that comes in, the, uh, like the Agricultural Adjustment Act, that comes in in the New Deal and some legislation earlier in the 1920s, was a version of what the populists proposed. On the other hand, I think it's not incidental that these policies come into being after the populists were defeated. So the populists were regarded as a very threatening movement, but their ideas could be embraced later on when the um, sort of radical edge of populism no longer uh, had to be confronted. So I do think that Part of the legacies of populism show up in the left wing of the progressive movement. They show up in 20th century American socialism. We have to remind ourselves that the some of the strongest socialist states in the 19-teens were Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, right? And to look at the New Deal, where populist sensibilities, you know, still have real traction. And it was also a time... Uh, as it works out, that the first scholarship on populism is being written that looks at populism as a progressive force in American society. To this day, I think it's a reminder that popular mobilizations can be very effective politically, even if you're not necessarily happy about, you know, what they're pursuing. So I think that... Um, that's one of the things we, we have. So they uh, um, many of the things populists were interested in uh, did come to being, but certainly the uh, relative disempowering of the countryside was not transformed. We know the rural population has shrunk, the number of farms uh, has declined dramatically over time, and the power that had been out there and the kind of cultural force that may have been there is, did not endure. And I'll just close with um, the present time. Is it possible to draw any parallels between the populist movement of the 1880s with uh, the present-day strain of populism? Well, certainly one of the things that you can't help but see is that in what we call the Gilded Age of the second half of the post-Civil War 19th century, that issues about concentration of wealth and power, uh, economic inequality, uh, political corruption that comes from the use of wealth for political purposes was a central issue. And the populists are only one of many, many independent political movements, labor movements, that organize themselves in response and mount a critique of American industrial capitalism in the latter quarter of the and third of the 19th century, using similar languages uh, that we see now. There's no question that 
the concentration of wealth and the overall problem of economic inequality, which has become especially pronounced in recent decades, is very much part of the popular unrest, certainly among those who feel that they have been disadvantaged. It has not taken the same kind of organizational form because in the 19th century, it led to rural organizations, urban organizations, labor organizations, really organizations that were among workers and producers, whereas today, you know, most of this discontent is not organized. I mean, one of the remarkable things about this recent election is that, you know, Donald Trump was elected president without doing anything in terms of really on-the-ground mobilization. He didn't. I mean, it was it's, incre- it's actually astonishing that it happened. So you don't have those forms of organization. As a result, there's no agenda. There's no clear, you know, if we get elected, we're going to do this, 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 and this, all of which are going to contribute to readjusting the balances of power. There's sort of fantasies about bringing jobs back, but it's not about who holds power. They're not challenging the power employers have over employees. They're not suggesting that labor be empowered through organization so that they could advance their own demands. So... None of the critique is really tied to the kind of organization that was developing in the 19th century and I think ended up taking an agenda and turning it in a direction of political elections. Now I think it's much more inchoate and it's very hard since the word populism is used in so many contexts here and elsewhere and is attached to so many different kind of movements mostly of the right but not entirely so whose only shared identity is a dissatisfaction with the behavior of established elites whatever that means. So I think the populace knew who they were up against, and they named them, and they knew what they wanted to do, and they laid it out. And whether people think that, you know, there's been discussion and debate about how uh, effective their proposals might have been, but there is no question that had the populace won political power, or even had the Democratic Party won political power, it would have affected the way in which the political economy of the United States was organized. Now, one might say, well, there was no way they were going to win, and maybe that's true. But even in the election of 1896, which was, you know, really the last substantial one in which the populists had a presence, uh, they lost the electoral vote pretty substantially, but the popular vote was very, very close. And... Um, you know, that's that's significant. So I, I see circumstances that are similar. But in terms of the very nature of the political movement, insofar as it is one now, I think they're still they're quite different. Well, Dr. Stephen Hahn, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. 
Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.